News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever heard of something called the agony column? Like, even if you've never heard of it, and by the way, it's from the Victorian era, so no worries if you haven't, it is actually having an impact today. It's all about how we communicate in public. Now, I could describe all of this to you, but you know what? We're going to let our guest do that, actually. Natalie Cook joins us now, a professor of English literature at McGill University. Good morning. Good morning. What was an agony column? Well, essentially, an agony column was a personal ad. Um, but one of the most intriguing things was it, it was featured on the front page of the newspaper. So that along with births and deaths and shipping news, um, readers of the newspaper felt that it was one of the most important things to follow. And that was until 1966. Really? And so you could see these. Was it very personal? Like, what was the attraction there? It was absolutely personal. So Today, think about encrypted messages. We send personal messages through WhatsApp because we trust they're encrypted. But in the newspaper, they were on the very front page. And so in some cases, they were things like, you know, missing dog or the person with the red feather on the train yesterday, you know, contact me. But in some cases, they were actually written in code and cipher so that there could be incredibly personal messages written in plain sight. And so were people like reading this on the front page of the newspaper trying to figure out what the codes meant? Absolutely. So, I mean, there are images in the Victorian period of individuals scouring the front page and following it, including Queen Victoria. So, for example, um, there was a wonderful uh, correspondence between Nono, P.O. Nono, and Pope Jean in 1862, and it was about an elopement. And actually, unfortunately, Pope Jean's father figured out the, the code and the cipher and put paid to the elopement, for example. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so why is this still so interesting to us today? Because what kind of influence is it having? Well, I mean, the obvious influence is that the kind of um, narrative that develops through ads and correspondence going back and forth creates a wonderful plot line. So in 1868, the Norfolk News called these ads a romance in a nutshell, right? So one of the things we see in contemporary films, including remakes of Sherlock Holmes and Enola Holmes, is that these ads actually further the plot. They allow us to see how individuals are corresponding between to one another, and we're seeing a kind of narrative developing between these very succinct little messages. So it's kind of like how we love puzzles, right? We love to solve puzzles in a very communal way. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. So it's a version of puzzles, and it's imagine um, stories written in Twitter, right? We follow Twitter, um, but imagine that happening on the front page of your daily newspaper so that you can see these particular star- stories evolving. And you can feel so proud of yourself if you can actually decode some of these puzzles. There were people who could do it. The, the real version of Sherlock Holmes, a man called Ignatius Pilati, was notorious for solving these puzzles to the detriment of the poor people who went to a lot of trouble trying to encode them so as to have 
um, communications that were not decipherable. So uh, this really forms the basis, Natalie, of so much of what we see today, isn't it? Like, we love a good mystery, we love to solve these things, and we consume it, whether it's on TV or read books or, you know, in the newspaper. And so this is kind of where it all got started from. Exactly. And so, in other words, you know, we think about encryption today as something that's digital and involves our digital platforms. Here is the early version of encryption, and it's analog. That is, we can actually see it in plain sight. And it's pretty easy now. In the last decade or so, we've had newspapers digitized. So really, for the first time in our decade, we're able to go back and see decades of newspapers and front pages and get a sense of what these felt like. So imagine... Um, If you were out in the Arctic and you couldn't communicate to your family because you weren't going to be able to send letters home, how could you do it? You would place an ad in the newspaper because you could be sure that your family would read the front page of the newspaper. And if you wanted to be very secretive about how you were doing on your mission up north, let's say you were looking for the lost Franklin expedition, as the Shackletons were, then you could encode it and your family and, and your colleagues would have a chance to see how you were doing on your quest. So how similar do you think social media is? Like, obviously, we still like the public messages, but we're not encrypting very many of those these days. You know what? We are in a way. Um, so, you know, think about social media where we are, we are publishing messages on our personal platforms. But also think about how many of those accounts don't really belong to the individuals who, um, whose name is attached to them. And also imagine that we are putting our best selves forward in those communications. So there is there's an element of a kind of a veil of fiction that's occurring in those so- social media correspondences. And we're definitely encrypting. You know, some, some of the platforms we use, we prefer Signal, for example, to... You know, we expect Twitter to have a certain kind of um, uh, level of mediation. There's been huge controversy about it. Right. But I guess also what I'm thinking is that we still expect or, or, or think there are hidden messages in, in things that are right there in plain sight. And is this, do you think, part of that? Yes, absolutely. Um, and part of that isn't, isn't part of that human nature. I mean, there's been um, an increased interest in mystery and crime and detection recently in an era where we thought novels would be dead. Um, So there's a a human curiosity for those kinds of secrets. And that's one of the things we're reading for. And yet we don't remember, do we, Natalie, that perhaps this is the origin of that, or this really helped it along, brought it into kind of more mainstream, widespread culture? No, absolutely. When people ask me what I'm up to, I talk about looking at the agonies or the early personal columns, and they think it's very obscure. It's niche. It's only part of history. But it's actually the origin story of much of our contemporary digital communication. This is so fascinating. We love a good twist, too, I think. And that, right? Like, I love a book or a movie or anything that has a, a surprise twist in it. Absolutely. And I mean, how much fun is it to take a look at some of these early uh, um, personal ads, especially if they have um, codes on them that aren't even plain English, you know, in ciphers, 
and to, to work out the different ways of solving those mysteries. That is so true. Listen, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Lovely to talk to you, Simi. Thank you. I have really learned something this morning. That's Natalie Cook, who's a professor of English literature at McGill University, and she studies something called the agony column, which was very popular in 19th century English newspapers. Now, you may, may have heard about this. Like, remember, there used to be advice columns and agony, all that kind of stuff. Well, this is where it started from. But the influence of that today on the fact that we love to solve puzzles or we love mysteries or, you know, we love to decode things, all of that really became widespread with these agony columns. Love it. This is Mornings with Simi. Canadians have a lot on their minds these days. Inflation, taxes, foreign interference, the list goes on and on. So does an issue like defense spending even make the list of your concerns? Well, that's the problem with it, right? Even though we know Canada is not living up to its commitments for defense spending, both at home and with our allies, there really is little political incentive for any government to spend more or make a commitment to spend more. But is there a way to convince us otherwise? Well, Dr. Eric Van Rijthoven is a professor of political science at Carleton University and joins us now to talk about that. Good morning. Good morning. So is there a way to convince us otherwise? I think it would be really difficult to do so without understanding why Canadians are so skeptical of actually increasing defense spending. Can I give a little bit of context first? Oh, sure. Go right ahead. So just a bit of context, when we talk about increasing defense spending in Canada, we're usually talking about trying to meet the NATO target of spending 2% of GDP on defense. Last year, we spent about 1.4% of GDP, but we are still very well below that 2% threshold. An important reason why, as you just mentioned, is that Canadians simply have other priorities, right? Inflation, housing, the cost of living, health care, all of those things rank much higher. But another really important part of the story is that Canadians have very legitimate and good reasons to be skeptical of increased defense spending. Can I mention just three very quickly? Yes. I love that you asked. First of all, I love you asked for permission. But yes, please go ahead. Explain it to us. (laughs) Well, it's your show. So I just want to make sure that you're running it. Um, The first one is that in the last two decades, Canadians have seen a variety of defense and security figures who just dramatically exaggerate threats well beyond any reasonability. So we are told that Afghanistan was vital to fighting terrorism. It wasn't that Iraq had WMDs. They did it. And that fighting ISIS was going to be the greatest struggle of our generation. And that's not even close. And when these claims are revealed to be a bit suspect, well, the Canadian public is going to be understandably skeptical. Second, I think the memory of Afghanistan still looms large for many Canadians. And Afghanistan is a bitter memory especially considering the blood and treasure we spent there and how little we have to show for it. And I think the lesson learned for a generation of Canadians is that there really are limits to contributing to NATO simply to appear as a good ally, because that's what we were doing in Afghanistan, trying to be a good ally. Finally, I think there's a disturbing lack of accountability over defense and security failures. So if you think about the mission in Afghanistan, there's been no public inquiry. There's been no public commission. We haven't even had a national dialogue on what went wrong and how we should do better. Now, add to that a series of really cringeworthy procurement failures. And what is 
frankly, disgraceful sexual misconduct in the military. And I think Canadians can rightfully ask, is this a system I want to pump more money into? And for many, the answer is no. So does it take a political party or somebody to come along and make the, the case to Canadians that here's why we should care? I think, I think you need to change the way that we talk about defense spending. I think the usual tact of people in the defense community, and this sometimes includes the media as well, is to admonish Canadians. It's to say, oh, Canadians are complacent, Canadians are ignorant, Canadians right. are free riders, and that they need to understand that the world is dangerous and we need to spend more. But I think instead of doing all of that, which we've been doing for the last 20 years, I think we need political leadership that speaks candidly to the concerns and skepticism of Canadians. And it means there needs to be real and meaningful progress on transparency and accountability at all levels. So how do we take those steps? Well, I think we need political leadership, initiative, innovation, and creativity at the highest levels. I think we can also see it in government. So, for example, when there is something like a major procurement failure, say at the Department of National Defense, the department needs to proactively tell us when, what went wrong and how they're going to do better, rather than just letting it drip out as some kind of scandal or controversy that the media is going to pick up. More generally, I think, I think there's a belief amongst many policymakers and many politicians that if you just don't talk about bad things, they'll go away. But that's not how the world often works. And every time the government tries to maintain silence about something, silence, say, about failures in Afghanistan, it makes people more skeptical about something being hidden and that there's no real change on the way. So we do need to see that initiative taken at the highest levels. I think you make an excellent point here. I think growing up, I remember that if if we had been asked what Canada's military purpose was, that we would have said we were peacekeepers. Right. That, that was our mission. That was why we did it. That seems to have been lost along the way. Well, I think I think we do need to have a national conversation about what is the purpose of our military. And I think that right now there are two openings, not to say that these are the only things the Canadian military should be doing, but there are two openings where there is a great deal of national agreement, which is important in a time of high polarization. The first is in supporting Ukraine and its war against Russian genocide. It is surprising in the polarized environment we live in just how many Canadians support Canadian government giving aid and arms to Ukraine. I think the other increasing role that we'll see for the Canadian Armed Forces in the future that has lots of national buy-in, lots of national support, is in responding to natural disasters and helping Canadians who are under threat. And maybe some of your listeners in BC remember the support of the Canadian Forces in the last several years as they suffered through some really serious natural disasters. So I think that's another front that we can build very broad-based public agreement. Okay, so that all of this... Dr. Van Rijthoven, has to be undertaken, right, by a government or people in charge to say, we are going to improve Canada's relationship with how we look at the military. Mm -hmm. 
I think I, I think the that. Canadian military does need a, an image improvement. It has been a very, very rough couple of years, especially with successive sexual misconduct cases. People need to start thinking about very hard how they can improve the military's, frankly, tarnished image. And that has to come from the top. Do you see any desire or willingness to do that? I see a government that has a lot on its plate. And unfortunately, (laughs) right now, I see the cost of living crisis as being the central priority of almost every political party. So that's what makes things so difficult. They're just juggling so many issues right now. There's not a lot of bandwidth to think about defense spending. And so do you feel that that's going to continue? Because even with that report that came out, that leaked information about Canada not meeting its NATO targets and NATO allies not being happy about that, it didn't really seem to gain a lot of traction, did it? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it didn't gain a lot of traction and it shouldn't gain a lot of traction because we need to stop thinking about defense in terms of meeting arbitrary targets like spending 2% of GDP on uh, on defense. And we need to start thinking about what is the Canadian Armed Forces actually for? What is all of this defense spending for? And actually justifying to the Canadian public why this spending is a good idea rather than simply being browbeaten into trying to reach this 2% goal. So interesting. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you. Really appreciate that. That's Dr. Eric Van Rijthoven, who's a professor of political science at Carleton University, talking about our kind of awkward relationship, Canadians, and how we feel about defense spending. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Hey, don't forget, there is just one day left to get your tickets for the CKNW Kids Fun and Backpack Buddies Mega 50-50. This is the first time we've ever done uh, a 50-50 lottery with the CKNW Kids Fun. And they want to make sure that no child goes without the support they need to thrive. So you have a chance to win some money. You have a chance here to really, really help out some families and some kids who need it. This is all presented by Sea Lovers, the best fish and chips in town. And again, go to cknwkidsfun.com to get your your tickets. You have one more day to do that. Now, we know that, you know, we want to provide some incentive here too. We wanted to highlight some of the great work that the CKNW Kids Fund does as a way for you to go, you know what? Yes, that is a great cause. I might want to try to win some money, but I would also like to help out what they're doing with their work at the CKNW Kids Fund. So joining me now to help us out with that is Ken Williams. Ken is a grateful dad who's had some help with the CKNW Kids Fund. Good morning, Ken. Hello there. How are you today? Well, on the Sunshine Coast, you couldn't be better. It's a privilege to live here. It, you're right. <laughs> it is. Now, I know that you've had some help from the CKNW Kids Fund. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, um, boy, it, uh, we don't have enough time to tell the whole story, but um, I would say that uh, you guys have been instrumental in making memories. And uh, a little bit about it was... Uh, Back in 2002, one of um, our children passed away, and where you helped is he um, he is uh, very snuggled in a wonderful sheepskin thing that was on his bed, like a little blankie thing that was on his bed. He laid on it and for two and a half years, and uh, I can have a great memory of him being snuggled, and he's passed away, but it's a good memory, and it wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for the help you guys gave us. And that was just one child. 
it go, it gets worse. <laughs> oh, Ken, I know your story has a lot of ups and downs, and you've had some tragedies really impact your family here. I, I'm glad that in a small way, the CKNW Kids Fund has been able to help you out with, with some good memories. Um, let me ask you about your daughter. Now, I know your daughter has autism and ADHD. That's brought a lot of challenges there. Uh, has the CKNW Kids Fund been able to help with that? Well, that's probably the greatest memory of all. I mean, a lot of the memories are kind of sad, you know, uh, with the children passing away. But um, after after three passed away out of five, Ellie is the win-win story. She uh, was diagnosed a couple years ago with scoliosis, and uh, it didn't look good. And some of the research we did was, wow, pins and pain and operations and surgery. And there was a two-year wait to get into Children's Hospital. So... We went and advocated, like we always did, uh, lots of experience with our children. And we found an organization that would help her scoliosis with physiotherapy and all kinds of stuff. But there was a $4,000 brace needed to fix her back. Oh, my goodness. And we couldn't wait two years. We know a, a young boy that did, and he's got the pins and the pain and the surgeries. And But Elise finally got into children's just last month. And after two years waiting, she is 75% corrected because of the brace wow. and just about done growing. And we would not have been able to have the brace unless you guys, you, you supported us. You paid the money to get that brace and intervene in her life. And she will have a life now, the rest of her life. She's 16, just starting out, 16. So what a memory. Like, that's no what kidding. it's all about. Oh, uh, Ken, I am so glad that in some small ways we've been able to help you and your family. Thanks so much for telling your story this morning. We appreciate that. They're not small ways, Timmy. They are <laughs> incredible memories that will be with us like a legacy and all because of your people's donations. Well, they you really, know what? you've really sold help. it better than I possibly could. So thank you very much for your time this morning. That is Ken oh. Williams. Ken, as you heard, grateful dad. His family has had some tragedies there, but some of those positives, you know, helped out with the CKW Kids Fund. And we are absolutely grateful to be able to do that. So Ken is with us this morning because we want to make that pitch to you to help us be able to do some more. And at the same time, you could win some money. This is the CKNW Kids Fun and Backpack Buddies Mega 50-50. Just one day left to buy the tickets. Ticket sales end May the 4th, tomorrow. So get those tickets today. Go online to cknwkidsfun.com. You can see the total there. I think we're sitting at about $70,000 right now. Uh, so that's a good chunk of change coming your way if you win this thing. So check it out. Get your tickets. And of course, we'll be talking about the winners and more and stuff on the show in the days ahead. This is Mornings with Simi. Hollywood writers are on strike. That's the first time in 15 years that's happened. So there's something like almost 12,000 members of the Writers Guild of America. They stopped working when their contract expired. What they want, apparently, is they want a higher minimum pay, but also the explosion of streaming services and the amount of content that's been produced, you know, in the last five years, they want a greater cut of that because there haven't been a lot of rules in place for how that works. Question is, 
how will this impact us, right? Production has stopped. You won't see any new episodes of, say, late night TV shows right now because they need their writers. Uh, If you're like me, you watch Saturday Night Live all the time. You won't see that. That show's been put on indefinite hiatus uh, until this writer's strike is resolved. Uh, But what about production right here at home, too, in BC? So joining us now is Jonathan Walker, who's a writer and showrunner, to talk to us more about this. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. How big of an impact do you think this is going to have? Well, certainly in terms of local production, there's going to be a decline as the the strike goes on. The longer it goes on, the more of an impact it'll have. Uh, There's obviously shows that have an inventory of scripts that can continue to shoot. But once they reach a point where they have to have the work of writers to move forward with new scripts or with revisions to current scripts, they're going to have to stop production at some point. Okay, and so what are the big concerns here? I know that writers definitely want a kind of more control over their work, right? Well, really what it comes down to is the ability of writers, particularly younger junior writers, to be able to make a living from doing what we have been doing for decades. And the problem is that with streamers, the old conventional model of shows airing on network television, every time a show would re-air, there would be advertising that would be sold, and there would be a cut of that profit made by the network that would be paid to the writers in the form of a residual payment. Those residual payments basically kept writers afloat between gigs because they're not always working. They're in between jobs. They're contract to contract. With streaming, now that all of that money has moved into uh, the streaming uh, arena, the way that they make their money is off of subscriptions. So there's no re-air fees and very little money that trickles back down to the people who create the shows. So writers are getting a very, very small percentage of that and are now struggling to make ends meet between gigs. And that really largely impacts the newer writers more specifically, but it's it's just a, a complete loss of income for most writers as a result of this new model of distributing shows. Okay, that's so interesting then. So... If you're a writer, you would prefer to write for, say, broadcast or network television, right? But you don't often you don't have that choice. Well, certainly with the WGA, obviously there's still a large market of shows that are done for the main networks that still run on an advertising model. Uh, but more and more, we're seeing those shows end up on streamers regardless. And what used to be a revenue stream of re-airing on networks is now being put off to streamers. Even networks like NBC have things like Peacock and there's no residual model there that really fairly compensates writers. So really, this is an issue of not wanting more money. It's actually wanting to get back to a place where we can make a living from doing the work that we were doing before. Right. And so how much of an issue has this been the last few years, Jonathan? Because there's just been an explosion in production for the streamers, hasn't there? Yeah, as streamers have diversified, as more streamers have come into the marketplace, there's been a lot of new programming. And the outside observer may think, well, this must be a golden era for writers because now there's more work. There is more work, but the work is paying vastly less than what it used to. And so as a result, this new model is better for the consumer in the sense that there's all this wonderful diversity of choice. But writers are still doing the same amount of work to make those shows happen so you can watch them. Uh, But we're not actually making anywhere close to the money that we would be making if the model had not changed the way that it has. Okay, so how long do you think before this is kind of felt in terms of production? In terms of how it's felt for production, I, well, I think that <clears throat> there's certain shows, like, for instance, I'll give you a great for instance, a show uh, like Last of Us that lots of people are very excited about is supposed to be starting to shoot its second season. They will have some scripts banked. They may even be able to shoot some of those episodes, but they will probably not be able to finish their season. So that means we will not probably see The Last of Us 
uh, for quite some time. Uh, the longer the strike goes, the longer that show will be delayed and won't come to air for a longer period of time. So it's going to be a cumulative effect. Things will start to slow down the longer the strike goes. OK, well, that's a really good example because that's also supposed to be filmed here. Yes, that's true. The second season is uh, in pre-production in Vancouver and Lower Mainland shoot for the summer was what was planned. Okay, what was planned? So all of this, so this has just started. Do you foresee this taking a while to get resolved? I think it is going to take a while to get resolved. And the big reason is that we are the first, the Writers Guild of America is the first union in line to want to renegotiate uh, their contract with the AMPTP, which is the producers association that all the big streamers and networks are, are part of. Um, the Directors Guild is coming up after that. SAG, the Actors Guild, is coming up after that. Uh, they all are looking at these same issues and looking at the way that they're not actually making revenue from these services. You, you know, the streaming services are now a $30 billion industry, and uh, they're just not trickling down to the creatives that make the shows. And so all of these unions are backing up to uh, renegotiate. And as a result, the AMPTP are trying to strike a hard line now so they don't have to give up much as they move forward. So it's going to be, I think, probably a protracted strike. Right. So this is the template is what you're saying. So that this could be the thing that everybody else looks to points to. Absolutely. All the other unions and guilds will be looking to SAG to make the best deal possible because they will use it as precedent when they go in to negotiate their deals in the re- probably the latter part of this year. Jonathan, what's it been like for you? You are a writer, you are a showrunner. So does that mean you, you have you been, uh, were you pressured to do a lot of work up until the strike so that, you know, producers could stockpile stuff? Well, this is the other big problem in the industry. And it's one of the things on the negotiating table is that we're increasingly moving towards a model where a lot of work that used to be paid for writers to develop new prog- programs and new shows is now unpaid work. And so we're expected to do a lot of uh, prep and a lot of research and a lot of writing and deliver that material without getting compensated. And we only get compensated if the show gets made. So I've been doing an enormous amount of work in the past six to eight months trying to get new shows lined up. Those shows are now all on hold because of the strike. And so, I, you know, it's a case of not earning anything during this period of time and having to make ends meet. The writers are used to this. We always have a gig-to-gig mentality, and you have to make sure that you put your money away when, you know, you're working so that you have money and resources when you're not. And this is one of those situations where we're all just going to have to tighten belts and get through it. I guess also what I find interesting here is that, boy, it's been such... Uh, topsy-turvy world when it comes to production and and Hollywood and entertainment in the last couple of years with the pandemic. And it felt like things were just starting to get back to normal, didn't it? It did. We had to jump through a lot of hoops, obviously, like many other industries, to keep our sets safe and to continue with production. Um, We obviously have emerged from that to a large degree. But yes, this is unfortunately another of many storms that have hit our industry that have impacted the ability for people, everything from crew to cast, to writers uh, to make a living from this industry, it's increasingly difficult. And, uh, you know, at this point, we're just trying to fight for a fair share from the streamers. Well, Jonathan, thanks for explaining it to us this morning. No problem. Thanks. Appreciate that. Jonathan Walker is a writer and showrunner talking about this Writers Guild strike. You've probably seen the headlines, right? He's seen the headlines, read the stories, heard something about it and thought, well, what well, doesn't really impact you. It does. The great example that Jonathan just gave us is The Last of Us Season 2. Huge. Remember the, I mean, even the mayor of Vancouver, Ken Sim, was all excited about The Last of Us Season 2 picking. Vancouver was going to shoot here for Season 2. What a big deal. 
Yeah, all of that uh, potentially on hold because of this strike. Without writers, they can't get all the episodes written. They can't move forward with production, meaning that's just one small example. Think about all the other productions that we have here uh, that will have to be put on hold or wait or potentially cancelled if this Writers Guild strike continues. And so that's why it's an interesting one to follow and take a look at. This is Mornings with Simi. You've heard the stats, right? That BC needs to fill, what, more than 1 million jobs over the next, what, 10 years or so? 80% of those jobs are going to require workers to have some kind of post-secondary education and training. But the question is, well, what kind of training and what kind of post-secondary education and how do you point people in that direction? Well, that's what we're going to talk to Selena Robinson about. This is the Minister of Post-Secondary Education just announcing a new plan for this. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so how do we do this? Well, we've been um, spending the better part of a year putting together our Stronger BC Future Ready Action Plan. Um, and we unveiled it, the full plan, yesterday, uh, looking at over 20 different actions that we're taking to make sure that employers can find the talent that they need to sustain uh, their businesses as well as grow their businesses and recognizing that we have a changing economy. So there's a number of actions that we're taking that we're putting in place. One of the key ones is, of course, the Future Skills Grant. Uh, that's a grant of up to $3,500 that's available to British Columbians for short-term courses so that they can reskill or extra skill uh, in, their, you know, in their current place of work. Employers can um, you know, encourage their, um, their employees to, to um, be ready for the workforce of the future or the, the, you know, as changes evolve in the workplace. Um, but we've got a number more um, investments that we're making. That includes uh, 3,000 more tech seats. Um, that's on top of the 2,900 that we've already created over the last six years because we know that so much tech is in so much work that we're doing, um, expanding um, uh, the, the provincial tuition waiver program that we, we talked about, I think it was last month when we announced that, and that's um, making post-secondary education available to 50,000 former youth in care in British Columbia, working with Indigenous peoples, um, making sure that there's um, opportunities for them to learn in their communities, um, and working together with um, Indigenous leaders to make that happen, uh, working on um, uh, foreign credentialing, changing legislation, that, that work is in progress. We'll have more to say about that in the coming months. That will make it easier for people who are already here. Sydney, they're already here in British mm-hmm. Columbia. They're already trained and they can't work in their in their professional training. So we're looking to make that easier and, and streamline that as well. So okay. there's lots more to the package. Uh, but that's a, a just a flavor. Okay, so how do you then, or how did you go about identifying where these jobs are going to be needed? Because you're kind of looking into the crystal ball here. Yeah, we we are, but um, but it's but we did do our research. So we engaged. First of all, we have the labor market outlook, and that takes a look out over the next decade about where jobs are going, and that informs us about what kind of training we're going to need. We also have um, some good um, um, engagement with industry, with Indigenous peoples, with post-secondary, uh, with labor unions, um, we um, employers, really making sure that we had a, a sense of where the, the various industries were going and what they needed to be doing and how technology was going to change what we need on the ground. Because, of course, in, for some uh, professional um, jobs, it's three, four, eight years of investment, and others, um, it's a 12-week you know, course that can you know, skill up or a 
four-week course, for example. So really making sure that we have a broad range. So like the Skill Up Grant, for example, that's available for short courses. There's 400 of them uh, that are available right across the province that can help people extra skills so that they could, you know, um, shift their job um, in, in some way and get the skills that right. they need. But we need to engage, and I think this is really important to me, that we need to engage in continuous um, uh, I guess, engagement with industry because we are seeing uh, transformation happening in the workplace at a speed that um, is um, probably faster than what we expected. We're now talking AI and have had a lot of people ask me about AI and what that means. So really antis- trying to anticipate and working together with industry is absolutely key and that's what we're doing. Okay, so then in that case, how do people find out about this because you want people to take you up on this? Absolutely. And that's why um, this fall, they're going to see a uh, sort of a one-stop shop. Uh, It's called Find Your Path. Um, We're going to be launching that. And that will um, help people identify high opportunity occupations. It's a one-stop digital service. Um, It's not up yet, so don't go looking for it. It'll be coming this fall. Uh, We're working on that. So it will help people find, you know, where do I, where do I want, where do I want to go? What are the opportunities? And what kind of training do I need in order to get there? And so uh, we're, we're, we're pulling all of this together so that, that every, British Columbia, every British Columbian has an opportunity uh, to find their path, to have a good job, and that employers can, uh, can find the people that they need. So is there also going to be an effort to help you know, post-secondary institutions tailor their offerings like, uh, so that high school kids know that these are options? Absolutely. And uh, so we're working with the post-secondary sector, but we're also working with the K-12 sector. So um, part of what we're doing is um, a dual credit program. We're expanding that. It already exists for some um, uh, some careers. And we're going to be expanding that because we know that for some, um, you know, um, spending more time in post-secondary is not a whole lot of what they want to be doing. They want to be, you know, be hands-on. Uh, so whether it's uh, working with uh, in the automotive sector, working with children, um, there's opportunities to do dual credit. So it's really right across the board. Uh, we've been working cross ministry to make sure that we could tap into the talent pool that we have, which is the, the people of British Columbia, and make sure that they have the training they need to do the jobs that they that they want and the jobs of the future um, and the ones that are in demand, so that um, they have a successful long right. long career to raise a family. Is there more perhaps career counseling as well given at that high school level? Well, that's a, that's a conversation that we're having with, um, uh, with the K-12 system. We're pulling together what high schools do and, and the, the technology that they use to help students um, and pulling it into the Find Your Path program so that they're all connected, um, making sure that um, everyone understands what are the, the in-demand fields um, what are the, the, the skills training opportunities um, and making sure that, you know, whether you want to become an apprentice, um, you know, a Red Seal chef, uh, whether you want to become, uh, you know, a, a, a pipe fitter um, or, you know, whether you want to become, you know, a, a digital technologist uh, or, ro- or working robotics, that, that you can see the path and understand what it is you need to do in order to get there. Okay, so then you mentioned the website here, like if people want to get more information, that's still a ways away. That's going to be up and running later this year. Yeah, it's, it's under construction. So um, we'll certainly make sure to let you know, Simi, let all of your listeners know when it's up and running so that um, they can you know, access it um, as well as access the grant. Uh, because that will be up and running for the fall. We just want to make sure that people see the opportunities that, are, that lay ahead um, so they can plan accordingly. And then um, in September, we'll have certainly more to say with, with more details All right, on, thank, on those programs. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Take that- care.